Hello and welcome to the Muni Lowdown. My name is Paul Graves and I'm the managing editor for Debtwine Municipals. Joining me today are my colleagues, Seth Brumby, the deputy editor, Mary Ellen Tide, the assistant editor, and our head of municipal research, Greg Clark. So it's good to be back. I was gone last week. I heard we had a good time. Seth had a couple of memory issues, but we survived that. Is that correct? Or am I... Am I misstating things? Well, Greg had to remind me that his name is not Greg Clark. It's Greg the Iron Man Clark. And you'll have to listen to last week's podcast to get the full story. <laughs> ah, well, that's a great tease there in terms of getting, uh, getting folks to tune back in to last week. That would include myself. I'll have to tune back in to listen, find out what happened last week. But um, anyway, we got a great podcast for everybody today. And... Obviously, one of the ongoing topics is the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. Mary Ellen, maybe you can start us off with a couple of things that are going on down on the island. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, the two big news items this week were that the Puerto Rico Financial Oversight and Management Board issued a request for proposals for investigators to look into the territory's debt. It's going to be basically looking at a review of the factors contributing to Puerto Rico's financial crisis a review of the debt in terms of use of proceeds, and then a review of Puerto Rico's debt issuance, disclosure, and selling practices. So if any listeners are interested in pitching them on any one of those topics, that's who you should get in touch with, the uh, oversight board. Yeah, examiners are kind of interesting things. And I don't know if the judge actually called this an examiner, but I remember during the Lehman bankruptcy, uh, the judge there appointed an examiner. Guy had a great name, Anton Valukas. And I can't remember what law firm he was from, but it took him, I want to say, it took him maybe three or four months to put together a reason for uh, Lehman Brothers' financial collapse. And in his report, uh, he essentially established uh, the discount repo rate that was occurring that um, led a lot of people to think that some of the transactions Lehman was doing were actually fraudulent. And I don't think Lehman was ever charged with fraud, but it really kind of pulled back the veil on what a lot of bulge bracket banks were doing at the time just leading up to the fiscal crisis. Yeah, this person's going to have an interesting job because I feel like Lehman, it was such a short window for people to talk and say things before they ended up in bankruptcy. Whereas we have stuff like Garcia Padilla a couple years ago mentioned, you know, when we were issuing bonds, we tried to make ourselves look a little bit better and maybe the numbers weren't quite as accurate as you would like them to be. Um, and there was a report earlier this week, uh, some statistics report about sales tax and how some of the projections that were used in the COFINA bonds were based on sales tax revenue from businesses that didn't even exist. And they said, maybe that's not a good idea and we should do it the way they do it. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no other word for that than scary. So, yeah, this person will have a lot of material to dig through. I'm sure it'll be very interesting. Yeah, I took a look at that RFP, and the, the scope of that is huge. It'll take a pretty big firm a pretty serious amount of time, I think, in order to do that and to do it right. And, you know, putting that in context, that also means that they're going to have to come up with someone to quote-unquote blame for what happened if they're going to go down this road with this project. So I think that's going to be... Very interesting, given that you have board members that might have been involved with underwritings in the past. So I don't know how quite they're going to work around all of that, but um, this, this should be interesting. That's a great point, Paul. When the board was appointed, a lot of people rose issues about where the board members had worked before. And of the seven-member board, this 
particular investigator will only report to three of them because the rest of them have felt that their conflicts of interest or their past um, work would be distracting from the objective. So that's interesting. Well, it leads to the point about whether or not they actually constituted the board correctly. And I think there was a lawsuit, another one earlier this week, uh, discussing whether or not the oversight board is was, was established within constitutional law. Yeah, yeah, the U.S. government is going to step step down into Puerto Rico and get involved there. The oversight board was established by the Obama administration. Obama was allowed to pick people from lists that were submitted by Republican, Republican members, members that put piece together uh, PROMESA. Yeah, and uh, but it never went through Senate confirmation hearings. And that was the crux of the argument that I believe Aurelius is bringing against the oversight board, saying because you didn't go through the, the typical you know, channels of advice and consent, your board is therefore unconstitutional. And I believe that lawsuit was maybe last week, but then this week the U.S. government essentially said, you know, we'll, we'll probably weigh in on this dispute. Um, I, I can't remember. I think they have 30 days to actually file some kind of response to or the Aurelius lawsuit. It has until October 6th to decide whether or not to defend the law and then 30 days to file its briefing. Okay, that. thank you for clarifying that. Sorry. The, the, uh, the one big argument in favor of the constitutionality, I think, is that the territories are different from states. And Congress has a lot, or the federal government in general has a lot more latitude about what it does with territories than it, what it does with states or federally in usual means. Yeah, we'll see how that one unfolds. That'll be uh, amongst the many other uh, lawsuits will be in, in crucial to watch. And Seth, I think we're moving this forward a little bit. There's been some other developments down in Puerto Rico regarding disclosure. Yeah, this um, a little while ago, the judge essentially told everybody involved in the case that various ad hoc groups of creditors, in other words, individual bondholders that might have banded together to work together on recoveries for their investments will have to disclose what those investments are. And uh, this week we heard from another group, the Mutual Fund Group, which includes uh, uh, Franklin and Oppenheimer, and this is related to the Puerto Rico Sales Tax Financing Corporation case. What's interesting about this particular group, the Mutual Fund Group, is that they've also made appearances in the PREPA ad hoc group. Um, and, you know, what we're working on actually here is we're looking at a way for people to take a bird's eye view of all of these ad hoc groups to take a look at, okay, well, where is their cross-membership? And then furthermore, where are their cross-holdings? So be on the lookout for that. Uh, what it hopes ultimately to do is once we see all the 2019 disclosures coming out with the various ad hoc groups, we can take a look at what kind of blocking positions there might be in terms of voting on a plan of debt adjustment. Of course, we might not see those for a couple of years. Um, but we can also take a look at what kind of voting control that there might be at some point in the near future. So this is an ongoing issue um, that we'll continue to monitor. I do believe that they have to periodically update their 2019 disclosure. So it's something that if anybody is watching this case and they see anything come on the docket that refers to Bankruptcy Rule 2019, that's 2019, uh, open that up, and it'll give you an idea of um, who really has all the money in this situation. And for those that aren't familiar with PREPA, because you use that acronym, Seth, that's the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority. Correct, yes, that's the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority. So, moving this conversation stateside, uh, Seth, City of Hartford, State Capitol, Connecticut, 
what's the latest there? I think the latest there is, you know, we decided to spend a lot of time the past week on looking at Hartford's cash flow in particular. I, I think everybody understands that Hartford is stuck between a rock and a hard place between the fact that the state hasn't completed their budget yet and the fact that Hartford has a lot of its own liquidity needs, um, one of which is actually some uh, debt maturities this fall. Um, whenever you get into a situation like this, oh, and on top of that, yes, they have hired restructuring counsel. So all of this is kind of pointing towards a restructuring of the situation. And whenever you get into this phase of, of municipal distress, I, I honestly think that bondholders need to ask themselves whether or not they're going to get paid the next time there's a coupon payment. Um, we saw this last year, actually, with Atlantic City. And mind you, Atlantic City, their problem was not their bond debt. It was tax appeals that were unpaid. So for Hartford to actually have uh, an issue with debt maturities and to not be able to make it or at least question whether or not they'll be able to make it should make some other bondholders nervous. So what we, went, what we did this week was really take a look at their cash flow and whether or not they would have enough to make their upcoming bond payments this fall. And... You know, without coming to any you know strong conclusions about whether or not a default is on the way, we did try and draw a pretty crystal clear picture that you know bondholders might want to start getting proactive about really monitoring this, whether or not they want to hold on to this investment, whether or not they need to start talking to their trustee and their own legal counsel about what kind of recourse they might have and what kind of rights they might have. Good news for them is that a lot of their debt is insured. So maybe the insurance companies at this point need to be talking to Hartford about ways to avoid a default. So we'll, we'll see how Hartford is going. Um, in addition to their debt service payments, they also have some school funding issues. Again, this is a result of the fact that the state has not completed a budget yet and therefore hasn't sent out the grants that it sends down to its cities to uh, fund it, their school districts. Um, considering the school year starts in a matter of weeks, that's certainly, I'm sure, a cause of concern for not just bondholders, but also families that live there, too. So uh, Hartford, uh, the story is developing there, and we'll just see what happens this fall. And uh, who was the reporter on the team that wrote up that story, Seth? It was Javier Balmaceda. He's he's based out of Boston, and he has a lot of experience covering municipal distress because he also looks at Puerto Rico. Yes, indeed. He's up here with me in Beantown. Uh, moving forward uh, with another credit that seems to stay in the news, Greg, is the state of Illinois. Seems like they've, what's interesting is like they had these years of uh, impasse on creating a state budget. They finally got that resolved this year, but now there's a new impasse going on. Can you tell us a little bit more? Sure. Thanks, Paul. The, uh, the current controversy is, regards school aid. There is a bill before the legislature's SB1, uh, State Bill 1, that has been vetoed by the governor. The legislature is going to consider an override. Actually, the Senate, the state Senate, has already voted as of this, this past Sunday to override the governor's veto, and the House will vote on Wednesday the 23rd whether to override the state, as we mentioned last week, I think, missed its, for the first time, missed its regular state aid payment to schools. That was, that was late as of uh, August 10th, or the day after August 10th, I guess I should say. The House override, interestingly enough, will require some Republican votes, so that'll make it a little bit more difficult. 
I spoke earlier today with Caitlin Devitt, our reporter in Chicago, and she gave me a little bit of insight because what the question that had been nagging me was, if the state passed a budget, which it did during the first week of July, how can it still be talking about school funding? I said, it's, it's kind of like leaving Medicaid out of the budget. Do you really have a budget if you don't have a major portion of uh, a major program funded? And she explained to me that the dollars are in the budget. The appropriation is in the, is in the budget, but the allocation of those funds is in dispute. The governor does not want to be as generous as many in the, in the legislature want to be regarding Chicago schools. He wants to take the money in the budget and spread it a little bit more around other parts of the state. And, of course, the, uh, the legislature, uh, especially Speaker Madigan, wants more money to go to, to Chicago schools, especially for pensions. The good news is that all school districts say they will open on time, and they'll be using reserves and or loans in order to do that. Uh, the categorical funds that have been approved, it's still unclear whether they can be used for general school purposes, and apparently the answer to that may be no. But as of now, every, every district in the state has said it's going to open on time. Right. Um, yeah, the school year is right around the corner. So the, the governor had... Well, was it like a line item veto, Greg, or? Uh, no, what, I, I think why? it's I think it's more the funding formula, which, as I understand it, can be tinkered with differently or separately from the dollars that are appropriated in the budget. So, this is this is a big thing. If if you're following Chicago schools, as a lot of people do, uh, the outcome of this will will decide to a degree. Uh, how Chicago schools are going to do financially in the in the current fiscal year that ends June thirtieth of eighteen. Okay, that'll be obviously another situation that we'll be following closely over these next uh, over this next week, I should say, and it'll be resolved one way or the other next week if there's a vote. And uh, by the time we have our next podcast, we'll see where things stand. But let's move on to uh, bankruptcy, a new bankruptcy that's developed in the municipal market, Goodwill Industries of Southern Nevada. Mary Ellen, can you tell us a little bit more about that situation? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, Goodwill Industries filed for bankruptcy last week. Um, It's Chapter 11, not Chapter 9, but they do have some muni debt. They expanded too quickly, according to some of their testimony last night. They just issued some bond debt. Uh, within the last couple of years, and then built too many new buildings, tried to do too much, and now, you know, are failing to meet bond covenants. Uh, they're hoping to restructure without any debtor in possession financing. They were issued by the bonds were issued through a conduit agency, which will be very familiar to our list, regular listeners, the Wisconsin Public Finance Authority. I think they've been behind such blockbusters as. American dream. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, a lot of uh, continuing care retirement communities, too. If, if I'm not mistaken, I actually think this is the first default on a PFA bond. You know, one we, we took a really close look at the PFA earlier this year, and despite the very long hair on a lot of their deals, 
they had not yet fallen apart and tumbled into bankruptcy and so far all the, the bonds are performing but this was the first to go and it was actually one of their more recent ones too if i'm it's it was issued what just last year yeah yeah within the last the last few months here last year so yeah, the bonds were issued as i recall without any ratings which i guess isn't surprising uh with all due respect to goodwill you don't expect their bonds to be overly strong and as i as i read somewhere their debt service coverage uh appeared to be pretty minimal so Seems oh, like it didn't take long for the bonds to head over to bankruptcy um which is somewhat interesting uh, usually it's a few years or it's like a lombard uh, kind of like drags on for a while and Maybe they get a forbearance on payments, but this looks like it went immediately in the tank <laughs> not long after the issuance. Now, Marianne, you had mentioned uh, debtor in possession, and there may be some, I'll open this up to all of you guys, but there, there may be some parts of artists that aren't as sophisticated that understand why that's a significant or a relevant item. Maybe you guys can uh, just give us a little bit more color around that. Yeah, so a debtor-in-possession financing structure would get goodwill, some more liquidity, but it would put whoever gives them that liquidity first in line to collect any money that goodwill eventually distributes to its creditors. So if you're holders of, and they're the series 2015 A and B bonds, that's when they were issued. So if you're holders of that debt, if they don't go the debtor-in-possession route, that's one less person in front of you in line. Yeah, okay. I think the bondholders have security on pretty much all the operations and the assets of Goodwill. And, you know, to the extent that Goodwill wants to continue operations while it's in bankruptcy, and it sounds like it, it does, it's a Chapter 11, they'll need to use some of the cash thrown off by the encumbered assets. And bondholders, if, if they want to allow Goodwill to do that, they have to be given some kind of adequate protection in the form of other assets or maybe a stronger lien. But I guess it's good news for bondholders, at least, that Goodwill at this point in time doesn't need to use um, uh, any, uh, doesn't need any debtor in possession financing. Okay. So that's a, a situation that uh, we'll be following as well. And then one more that's been around for a while, I think I might have just mentioned it. Um, this takes us back to that grand state of Illinois. Was it the nutmeg steak? Is that the is that what it's called? Yes, I believe in Illinois is the nutmeg steak. The, the no, it's Connecticut. Steak. Oh, is it? That's Connecticut. I knew it was. I, I, I was as soon as I said it, I, I was like, oh no. Oh, you tripped me up. Okay. Yeah, it's the Prairie State, right? It's the Prairie State. Prairie State. Yeah. Land yes. of Lincoln, something like that. Yes. Uh, so Lombard, uh, Seth, what's going on there? Well, it's this is an interesting bankruptcy. Uh, you know, Lombard is a village just outside of Chicago. Um, it fi- uh, the Lombard Public, Finance, uh, Public Facilities Corporation uh, filed for Chapter 11 in late July. There's about almost $200 million in debt outstanding. The, the, the debtor got into um, an agreement with some of its bondholders, but not all of them. Uh, the, the, it has a kind of a, a prearranged plan with Nuveen and Oppenheimer, um, a couple of its larger bondholders, as well as ACA Financial, which wraps some of the debt. But it did not get an agreement with uh, Lord Abbott, which owns some of the bonds, 
And moreover, it has gotten into the, uh, the bad graces of the U.S. trustee, which essentially represents the U.S. government in any bankruptcy proceeding. Both Lord Abbott and the U.S. trustee are objecting to the Chapter 11 petition itself. They basically say that Lombard, uh, it's not a corporation, nor is it a person, but it's actually a government entity and therefore is not qualified to file under Chapter 11. This creates a problem for the debtor and its creditors because if, if the judge ultimately agrees with Lord Abbott and the U.S. trustee and dismisses Lombard's petition, it has nowhere else to go. Um, it has to come to some kind of arrangement with its bondholders out of court or its bondholders sue them in probably a state court and get a rent of mandamus, which would be bad, in my opinion, for the village of Lombard because the village of Lombard, I believe, had to guarantee some of the payments. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons why they're in bankruptcy is because the village of Lombard passed various legislation and basically say they weren't going to pay on the bonds anymore. So this one is actually turning into a very interesting bankruptcy. The last one I remember that was like this was Las Vegas Monorail way back in 2010. And uh, in Nevada, like Illinois, does, has not authorized Chapter 9 for its municipalities. And when Las Vegas Monorail filed for bankruptcy... AMVAC showed up at bankruptcy court and said, you know, Your Honor, Las Vegas Monorail isn't qualified to file for under Chapter 11. It was, it's, it's, it's actually a state instrument. And the judge disagreed, and Las Vegas Monorail ultimately restructured under Chapter 11. But this doesn't happen very often, but it has happened before. So we'll see how this one unfolds, too. And a little bit of context around uh, the motivations of the different parties there that, you know, Lord Abbott's going to get the lowest with the existing plan, they would get the lowest recoveries. So obviously, um, you know, there's some incentive there to try to see if there's other alternatives. And wasn't the Lord Abbott involved in Las Vegas monorail, uh, Seth? I'm not certain. I, I remember Eaton Vance was a very big creditor. I remember Oppenheimer was a creditor in Las Vegas monorail. Um, AMBAC obviously was was an insurer. In fact, it was the only municipal policy that AMBAC put it into their segregated account that was overseen by the um, Wisconsin Insurance Commissioner. So uh, one thing to note, though, I, I'm not quite certain that giving Lord Abbott a little more money and a little more of a recovery would do much for the debtor because you also have the U.S. trustee who has no financial incentive in this case um, that's also objecting to the Chapter 11. So even if you made... Lord Abbott go away, the U.S. trustee still has some very strong issues with the petition, and we'll see if the debtor um, can mollify it or if the court will overrule it. Yes, definitely will be an interesting uh, challenge to track as we move forward. Well, looks like we've come to the close of another edition of the Muni Lowdown. Thanks for everyone for listening, and we look forward to talking to everyone next week. Take care.